Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to the Sonics Flight Podcast. This is episode number 58, SDS EFI for your AeroV engine. So we have talked about fuel injection several times in past episodes, but what we're going to talk tonight is a very specific builder's experience taking the SDS electronic fuel injection system and adapting it for their AeroV. And this is a fantastic option that really addresses some of the inherent limitations that the VW has. And we're going to hear about the the system, the installation, and the performance of SDS's EFI system on the AeroV. My name is Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonic's 1374. Joining me once again is my good flying buddy, Gary Motley. John Gillis is off tonight. Gary is a longtime pilot. He's a former CFI and a multi-time airplane builder. Gary, how's it going? You getting any flying recently? Oh, doing well. You know me. I fly uh, every opportunity I get. I uh, was lucky enough to fly down this weekend to see Mr. Gillis. And I do have to say, Mr. Gillis, I actually owe him 30 days of respect, <laughs> so I guess it needs to be whether or not he's present, and, and we'll get into that real shortly. But anyway, I flew down to his, his ranch down there at Kelly uh, Air Park last weekend, and he started helping me doing some vinyl wrap and all the plastic tips of my flying services to put a nice bright yellow in there, start to give it some more character, flash, and pizzazz, and it's starting to look really good. He's ordered me some nice royal purple... Uh, to put on the cowling, and that should be here uh, probably in the next day or two, and we'll try to get some more work done on this weekend. So for all of his hard work and effort, I told him I'd give him 30 days of respect if you <laughs> believe that. Yeah, and if anybody is curious, uh, we did a previous episode, and I have to look up the episode number, but we talked about vinyl wrapping for airplanes, and John definitely has some skill and experience in this area, and I think it's a fantastic option to, to very quickly finish out your plane. Alrighty, well, we have two guests for this episode. First up, Peter Van Skulkveig, or a.k.a. Pete Smith. Peter is currently flying a Trigear AeroV Sonics number 773, and he has an SDS fuel injection system on his AeroV. He recently appeared in the news uh, after having his plane at Sun and Fun, and there was a real nice write-up that also appeared on the Sonics website talking about your trip to Sun and fun, and um, I guess receiving a little bit of recognition at the show. So first off, Peter, thanks for joining us. And how was your trip to Sun and Fun? Hi, Jeff. Thank you. Um, trip to Sun and Fun was really adventurous. Um, I flew with a good friend of mine, Wayne Andrews. Um, we've been on several uh, excursions together, and Wayne and I generally fly together where we go somewhere. Um, the trip was pretty uneventful there. We... Um, Got to Sun and Fun, and one of the guys there said, oh, you've got to have your plane judged. And I said, oh, man, um, I, I don't think I should. <laughs> and he was insistent. Anyway, it, it did okay. And um, um, the trip turned out really well with, with me getting an award for the uh, best aero conversion home-built plane. Um, it's uh, basically a Sonics, and, and just a small correction, um, it, it's a standard gear um, Sonics. Um, the Y gear was um, um, the the nose dragger, um, as we affectionately call it. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. So I, I, I probably mixed those two up. So I, I should have elaborated. Your first aircraft was a Trigear YX, and then you built a standard gear Sonic. So my mistake on that. Oh, that's fine. That That's fine. Yeah. And so anyway, we flew to Sun and Fun, had a great trip, uh, and then you know both went and I flew back. And um, in my opinion, my, my decision to go with the fuel injection um, again on the second Sonics proved very well because, um, and I think Wayne will attest to this, that, that I burn a lot less fuel than he does and, and it seems to perform pretty good, you know, um, based on what Wayne tells me. Um, when he tries to fly with me, <laughs> I let him elaborate on that. Give a couple of quick stats on that trip. So you left from North Carolina all the way to Florida. How far was that? How much fuel? You know, just some of the vital stats off the top of your head. Okay, I, I don't have the vital stats, but it's about 600 nautical miles. We flew there. Um, my average fuel burn was three and a half gallons an hour. And um, I, I tears out um, at about a very close to 140 miles an hour. Um, and, and, you know, depending on whether you've got a headwind or tailwind, uh, then obviously that, that just w- will change to the plus or the minus. But generally I tears out around anywhere from 135 to 140, and that is miles per hour. And I generally run it around about 3150 uh, in the RPM range. Um, so very economical, and, and my temperatures run really cool. Um, I measure the temperatures in the standard places that Sonics measures for the CHT and e, uh, EGT. Um, on the oil temperature, um, I do measure at the back of the case and not at the front of the case. But based on that, um, m- my temperatures are, are well within range. And, Jeff, I've included a presentation um, if you wanted to put that out for publication, I've included a slide which which does illustrate the route that we took from uh, North Carolina down to Florida and, and also shows a screenshot of the Garmin G3X um, on the trip down at, at around about 3,000 feet. Yes. Just for clarification, is that indicator or true airspeed numbers you're mentioning? Yeah, I was saying TAS, so it's true airspeed. That's what I expected. That's very good. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay, Peter, I will put the the link to your presentation in the show notes so listeners can find it there on the webpage. Okay. And there's there's some useful information. If people do listen to the presentation, they might, might be able to reference the presentation, which is really just um, a collage of pictures, Jeff, but but it may it may help someone's memory when they do look at the picture and, and you know just reference the talk. Okay, good. All right. Well I'm looking forward to hearing more. Sure. And if we'd like just a quick comparison, the numbers that Peter just mentioned would indicate to me he's getting about 10 more miles per hour true airspeed on the same fuel burn that I would experience up here at my density altitude with the aero ejector. Yeah, that's a good good data point. Right. So also joining us for a real in-depth look at SDS system is Ross Farnham. He's the man behind Racetech Inc., which is the manufacturer of simple digital systems. So, Ross, um, thanks for taking some time out. I know you are a busy man. You have projects not just for home-built aviation, but projects for EFI conversion for all kinds of stuff. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's good to be here. Happy to talk about uh, this and learn a little bit more about uh, the Volkswagen and Sonax world. I'm uh, from the dark side, uh, fly an RV, also a fuel injection powered by a Subaru engine. And I built an, uh, an RV10 as well. 
but uh, I like all airplanes and uh, the Sonics seems to perform very well for uh, you know small engines so I've thought of building one at one point actually and I may and I, I looked at some of your build pictures on um, on the SDS website, and uh, I, I just it's interesting. I, I like your approach to problem solving, and I think that you have the same sort of spirit that a lot of Sonics builders have, which is uh, I really want to you know I, I want to stay true to the plans and all that, but I want to incorporate some of my own unique ideas and, and try to make things as good as I can. Yeah. So yeah. Ross, um, before we get too far into this. Maybe we can back up just a step and you can tell us just a little bit about race tech and SDS just to help frame the discussion that we're going to get into. We'll save the details about the system here for a minute, but just tell us about the company and the starting kind of the, the scope that you're involved in. Well, we basically started out with this in uh, about 1993 and uh, we started building actual computers in 1994, uh, pretty well exclusively for the automotive market. It was kind of a new thing back then, programmable EFI. There were only a few players at that point. Um, but within a year, 1995, I had a, a guy from the U.S. contact me that had uh, three and four-cylinder Suzuki's. Um, and he, he asked us, uh, could I put your fuel injection on there? And, uh, well, we thought it's an automotive engine. Shouldn't care if it's in a plane or a car. So... He bought uh, one for each, and uh, he flew those for many, many years. Uh, his name was Dennis Wiley, and he had a, a Spad and a Jenny replica powered by Suzuki automotive engines. And I think he got he had at least 600 hours on one and maybe 800 on the other, and I think the planes have been sold, and they're still flying. That was uh, 1995. So. Hmm, so that was kind of the birth of the aviation applications, huh? Yeah, he was the first guy, and... Uh, Maybe it slowly grew from there, but automotive was our main market, and we've sold nearly 10,000 computers now for all markets and about 2,000 for aviation only out of that mm -hmm. 10,000. Of the aviation market, what are your big customers engine-wise? Um, mostly Lycoming, so, and a large part of that are, are Vans aircraft just because there's you know over 10,000 mm -hmm. of them flying, so it's the biggest experimental market out there. Yeah, but we've done just about every popular engine that's ever flown in an airplane. Anything that's fairly lightweight, we've done something like 500 Subarus, um, Suzuki's, Chevrolets, Rovers, Volkswagen, just about everything mm -hmm. you can think of. Yeah. Okay. And um, the company and your home office is based out of Calgary, Canada. Uh, is that correct? Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. I guess I would assume that you guys are involved in in, uh, in helping builders all over the world. What what does your demographic of your customers look like? Yeah, probably eighty percent of our customers are uh, in the U.S. Just because you know there's more experimentals in the U.S. and the rest of the world combined. So and we're we're close by, but uh, yeah, we've sold stuff to I think about fifteen countries for aviation. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. Um, I, I think I think that's important to note. There are other systems out there, other manufacturers, other approaches to putting EFI on an auto conversion. But I think you guys really have the depth of experience that other companies do not have. I'd say that's a, a fair assessment. Yeah, there's a few other minor players in there. Of course, Rotex, you know, in the last few years, it's come along with their IS engines, you know, replacing the 
somewhat maybe troublesome carburetors with EFI and uh, of course UL power as you're familiar never came with carburetors it came with EFI right from the start so I think people see the the value in it uh, if it's done correctly it's a, a good way to go for a lot of people it's maybe not for everybody but uh, we we feel we can sell it to people if if they want it we don't really push our products we say here's what we've done here's what it will do and if that's something that interests you we'd be happy to work okay. with you well good well peter let's jump back over to you and uh, i'm going to just start our discussion off with uh, a simple question and that is why efi on your rov and what i'd like you to do is go through your thought process what drew you to considering uh, adding efi to your rov and then how you see this working out, the benefits, and put it in perspective to kind of make the case on why someone might also consider doing this. All right. Thanks. Um, and Jeff, just if, if I may add something Ross may have, for, for, I don't think he forgot to mention, but I think it's important to note that SDS um, will endorse you using their product for uh, experimental aviation. And um, it's important to note that, that, you know, a lot of companies will shy away from that. However, SDS stands by their product. And, and obviously, a, a question Ross could answer there too is the reliability, which kind of brings me back to your question. Um, so I guess the question why. Um, what happened to me, Jeff, in my case, and, and, and I think, you know, um, a lot of it has to do with with possibly your website and being one of the earlier Sonics builders, um, I, I looked a lot at your website and I looked at, at a lot of the information that you had published out there in the early days. And, and I, I'd like to thank you personally. I think there's a lot of builders that, that did exactly what I did. And uh, I hate to use the word plagiarized because I, I believe if you, if, if you, if you do, if you take somebody's idea from a lot of websites, it's called research. If you take it from one idea, one guy, it's called plagiarizing. So I, I, I guess I did my research on your website. Um, and, and I looked at a lot of the things that you had done. The one thing that, I, that kept coming up when I went to forums or fly-ins, um, it just seemed like the, the cooperation on the AeroV or VW conversion seemed to be a very common talking point amongst the builders. And and it, it was always in the fashion of um, what needle do you use or uh, does you do you have a float bowl? Do you need a fuel pump? Uh, how much head pressure do you need? And so it, it just seemed like the guys were having a lot of issues with the carburetors. And so I started looking at the automotive options and saying, you know, I haven't seen a car with a carburetor for many, many years. And so there must be something in this fuel injection thing. And so I started, you know, doing some research and, and talking to other builders. And, and it seemed like there just wasn't much in the way of uh, fuel injection options for the VW era, where you call it, VW era V, whatever you want to call it. And so started going down the road and... Um, um, Somebody mentioned to me the SDS folks that were out there, and, and that's really the why I started doing it. I, I, I was like, there must be an easier way to do this, Jeff, and, and that's, that's the reason I decided on it. Just too many problems that, that kept on coming up from you know, builders. Um, good friend of ours, um, 
you know, had an accident as a, as a result of a carburetor and, and things like that concerned me and stuck in my head and, and led me to, to want to go down an alternative path. And sorry, what was the Well, next let me question? just comment on that initially. Um, I, I, you're right. A lot of people do the, the discussions on flying builders oftentimes center about carburetor issues. And I use the AeroCarb. And it, for the most part, I'm a fan because I believe that Sonics's AeroCarb does uh, quite a few things pretty well. Uh, it is easy to install. It is low cost. It does give you manual control over mixture and flight, which is uh, of great benefit to most of us. And um, and it's once you understand it, it's relatively easy to set it where you are a little on the rich side to ensure that you're not going to have an excessively lean condition when you you know, move to a lower altitude airport or a high altitude airport. So it gives you some, some control over it. However, right. it right. is a compromise, like, like many other things. It's a compromise of performance versus simplicity and reliability. Uh, what you may gain in simplicity and reliability and maybe a little bit of controllability, you oftentimes will give up in the form of performance. And one of the things that we talk about is, you know, the, the, the carb is not very resistant, I'm sorry, it's not very susceptible to carb icing because the way the carb is designed, there's no real venturi. Um, and so you don't need a dedicated carb heat. But what we end up doing is we just draw warm undercal air, which is essentially like full-time partial carburetor heat. So it's a very simple, convenient solution, but it doesn't necessarily give you the maximum attainable performance by bringing in a cooler, denser air charge. And, and that's kind of the, dis- the way the discussion goes. So on the one hand, you have a fairly refined, simple system with the, with the AeroCarb, AeroInjector. And on the other hand, you have this potential benefit that's out there. If you are willing to, to develop a, a, a well-thought-out, reliable EFI system, there are some definite potential gains. And that's the part that's really attractive, I think, to a lot of people and what's intriguing to me. Yeah, and let let me let me just preface this with saying I have no experience with the AeroCarb, and I, I certainly wasn't making reference to any one specific manufacturer. I mean, I spoke to Steve Bennett when he was alive, um, and and you know went down various carburation options. So I, I'm not pointing a finger at anyone yet, Jeff. I'm just merely commenting on on the conversations that I was. You know, participating yeah, at the time. And I think that's entirely so, valid. And um, the, my, my comments were not designed to be a, a defense of Sonics' carburetor specifically, but just a way, a mental way to kind of to weigh the various options. Uh, you should not look at anything right, in right. terms of black and white. You should understand the strengths, the weaknesses, the, the individual requirements of that system and how to implement that system well. And, and that's what we enjoy talking about here. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, oh, okay. so yeah, yeah. Go with, ahead. With that. No, no, no. I, I would like you, like you, to go ahead. I just wanted to make clear that I, I wasn't pointing to any individual type of carburation. Just m- more what I've been hearing on, on you know, different forums and obviously at the flyings with builders. So I, I just wanted to clear that point up. Yeah. So, so why don't you tell us a little bit about how your engine is running? Just uh. Outline the performance and the benefits that you see from your perspective, 
And again, we're, we're making the case for why a person might consider EFI. And then we're going to kind of drill down and look at, you know, what are the components of your system? And we'll hear more about the details of the SDS system itself. So start with the, start with the performance and, and, and the end result. And then let's drill down. Okay. Um, so Jeff, my experience has been, you know, very good since, uh, since I implemented the EFI. There was, there was a little bit of a learning curve up front and, and we can go into those details. Um, from a performance standpoint, I believe it performs as well, if not better, than most Sonics out there. And from an economy uh, point of view, it certainly uh, does very well. The amount of flying experience I have behind um, the VWs with the, the fuel injection um, is is probably about 600 hours of trouble-free flying. So it's it's been you know very reliable to me. Um, I would like to point out some caveats here um, as in terms of reliability. Just as you had mentioned, there are pros and cons with everything. When you have something um, in the form of a carburetor, you probably don't need any power unless you, you know, reliant on a fuel pump or something. If you go the fuel injection route, you have to understand that, that you rely on a good battery, a good charging system to keep the aircraft airborne. If the fuel pumps or the ECU or any one component um, is void of electrons flowing, it's going to stop, and it's going to stop abruptly, and, and th there is no restarting it. Um, which leads me into another point is if, if you want to use the um, aerocarb or other types of carburetor as a throttle body, as a backup system, that's great. Um, you can use an, an, an aerocarb as a throttle body. It'll work just fine. I would just like to mention that if you have an electrical failure, the prop will stop. It's, it's, it doesn't carry much inertia. It'll stop in air. And whether you have an aerocarb or any other type of carburation device, if you do not have electrons flowing, you're not going to get it restarted. So I, I, we, we need to make it, it very clear that you do need a good charging system and a good battery to, oper to operate this in a safe manner. Yeah, and I think that is, uh, I think, understood by a lot of people as a, an inherent disadvantage of an EFI system. Your engine does become electrically dependent. It is a more complex system, and it potentially has more single points of failure that you need to really think through and, and ensure that you mitigate. Yes, um, certainly, like I said, yeah, good charging system, a battery will negate probably, um, you know, a, a lot of your concerns, but... Um, you know, the rest of the stuff is pretty simple. You, you generally will um, have some redundancy in the fuel pump arena and, and you could, in fact, double up on the ECUs as well and the all effect sensors um, if you so choose. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the biggest single point of failure will be the electrical system. Right. Okay. All right. Well, Peter, I think this is a good point uh, to transition over to Ross. And Ross, I, I'd like you to tell us a little bit more about the system itself, the major components. And what I want to work our way up to is how do we build a complete system to go on an AeroV? And Peter, um, I'll be at that point, we'll be kind of talking about your specific system because I think you did a, a wonderful job on yours and I want to hear about the details. So Ross, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the components? Okay, sure. Um, of course, the major components, I guess the major component is probably the ECU or computer. Uh, that does everything. Um, it can do fuel injection only or fuel and ignition control integrated, combined. 
Um, we also have a panel mount programmer for aviation that's generally mounted in the panel. That gives you uh, an eye into the system with four gauge modes and uh, it can show diagnostics on sensor failures if you happen to have one. And all the programming is done through that as well. So <clears throat> with our system, there's no laptop required to do programming like most other systems. And then you've got the sensor suite, which is generally a manifold pressure sensor. These are all solid state. Uh, engine temperature sensor, like CHT for air-cooled engines. Intake air temperature sensor. Uh, in some cases, we run a throttle position sensor, but not all aircraft need that, and not all are fitted with it. And for ignition control and sometimes to provide a tachometer signal to the computer, we use a, a Hall effect sensor with uh, flying magnets. And you've also got a cockpit adjustable mixture control where you can go plus or minus 50% from what's programmed in the computer. Um, I'd say those are the major electronic components. And then of course you've got one fuel injector for each cylinder. You've got uh, one or two fuel pumps uh, fuel pressure regulator that controls the uh, pressure in the system, keeping it at, at a constant differential over manifold pressure. And uh, fuel lines, of course, in the Sonex, if you've got a single fuel tank, we just uh, return fuel, excess fuel, uh, right back to the tank. If you've got twin tanks, generally we use a duplex type fuel selector. So if you were feeding from the right tank, it would also return fuel to the right tank. And on this system, the return flow is quite high on the order of something like three quarts a minute, probably at uh, idle and maybe two quarts a minute at cruise. So you do have to have a return uh, line plumbed into your fuel tank there. Um, that's kind of the major stuff. Um, as Peter mentioned, mostly for like homings, uh, or that's the market at least, we do offer a dual computer and it, uh, kind of uh, you got dual sensors for almost everything critical and you can switch between those and you can have one computer running one set of spark plugs the other running the other set at all times so there's some redundancy with the ignition if we're controlling the ignition as well so that's kind of the, the short of the major components involved there okay uh, two things that i wanted to, uh, to to get a little more on the, the crank position sensor, you said it's a Hall effect. Can you describe what it is, where you mount it, and what does it do? Yeah, the Hall effect sensor, most aircraft, at least with direct drive, they're mounted near the propeller hub. Uh, sometimes we'll put the flying magnets right in the tips of the propeller bolts. That's convenient because most have six bolts. Um some engines, we put them on the rear, like some other automotive conversions on the crankshaft pulley. Anything with a gearbox, we have to put them on the, the crank pulley that's turning at crankshaft speed. We can't put it on the, the propeller end with the gearbox. So basically, that uh, detects the position of the crank and uh, absolutely necessary when we do ignition control as well. We have to know the position. Everything's done electronically through the computer. There's no more rotor, no more gears. It's just the propeller hub and the magnets flying by and computer determines when we're going to uh, fire the spark. So with fuel only, uh, 
positioning of those things are not so critical. We're just getting a frequency off the flying magnets. Sometimes uh, the ignition systems do not provide a very clean tachometer signal for the computer, so we just use the Hall effect to provide that tach signal. We need that to to do the injections. So. Okay, and these are all your your products. This is not something that you send a builder to go source from somewhere else. Right, that's all supplied with the system there, and we build the the Hall effect sensors in house, and uh, we build almost everything in house. The electronics, we design everything, write all the software. Uh, the machining's done in, mostly in the same city uh, by uh, longtime machinist friends. So a lot of our components are CNC'd. So we try to keep everything under our roof, have control over everything, quality control, and uh, all the engineering and testing is all done by us. So not too many third parties, although we do very much appreciate feedback from builders like Peter, you know, can you do this? What about this? Something in the manual wasn't clear. You know, any way we can improve the product, we're very happy to hear because we can't, although I fly the system, I've been flying it for 16 years. Uh, there's nothing like thousands of builders literally giving you feedback that you can improve the product or, uh, you know, somehow make it better. Okay, well, good. So, Ross, the second question was you mentioned fuel only or fuel and ignition. Can you explain the difference there and kind of the dynamic that a builder might need to decide between? Yeah, I guess if people are happy with the ignition system that's on the engine already, and a lot of people, I guess, on a budget, the, obviously the fuel and ignition systems are a little bit more expensive. They might want to retain their magneto and just do the fuel injection only. Other people, maybe they've had bad experiences with magnetos or they're tired of the maintenance on them. They say, no, I want to ditch all of it and just go full engine management. I would say the Lycoming market, pretty much everybody does fuel and ignition. Uh, some of the Jabiru, Volkswagen, Suzuki, they will uh, decide just to go with the injection part. And, and is that built into the same computer box or is that a separate piece that you add to do ignition? Uh, generally built into the same box, yeah, it's all integrated, although we do have ignition-only systems, which are not quite the same but operate the same way. So if people were interested in only doing ignition, we've got some a uh, couple of different ones to choose from there. So the, the same computer would then just fire your coil packs or whatever you're using for Spark? Correct, yeah. We would do the fire the injectors as well as the coil okay. packs. So. All right. Okay, all right, thanks. I think that's good. Uh, we're just talking about, uh, you were talking about having two ECU systems and like dual sensors. So my question is, I, I was I, I'm wondering if, you would assume that the crank position sensor is absolutely the one that we absolutely have to have versus the other things such as a, a manifold pressure and air temperature uh, pressure temperature gauge. Is it just one hall effect sensor per ECU or can you actually have a, a redundant crank hall sensor for a single ECU installation? Um, I believe a few people have put twin hall sensors on with a select switch, but only two that I can remember over the years. Most people, if they're really concerned about redundancy, they, they do seem to buy the full dual setup there. The crank sensors have been used for something over 20 years. I have never seen a, one of our hall effect sensors fail electronically. I've seen uh, brackets come loose and the magnets saw through the sensor. I've seen cables melted on exhaust pipes, but never actually seen a Hall effect failure electronically. 
they're probably one of the most reliable sensors that's attached to the engine. But I'm just thinking, though, in, in net term effects, though, it would be essentially the same thing, whether it's a mechanical failure uh, versus something that's electronic. So if, if, for example, then, if we were talking about some of the other sensor failures, uh, manifold pressure, temperature, and so forth, how would that affect your basic ECU programming? Yeah, we've gotten to quite a bit of trouble to make sure that most of these sensor failures are non-critical. So we've got defaults entered at the hot and cold extremes for the temperature sensors to simulate a, a warm engine 70 degree Fahrenheit day. And for the manifold pressure sensor, we've got a resistor array in there. If the sensor fails, we'll generally pull it high, which will give you fueling for full power. So at least if you advance the throttle, you can uh, get back over an airport. And then with the mixture control, and closing the throttle, you can probably get down to about 50% power and keep the engine running, something like that. Uh, crank sensor, like you said, that's critical. Without that, you get no injector pulses, no ignition pulses. The engine will stop. So, so basically, it sounds like you basically have a default program that it might run a little bit on the rich side, perhaps, uh, to keep the engine going until you can figure out and get on the ground and troubleshoot. Right, and you've got diagnostics right in the programmer window. So if you get a MAP sensor failing high or low like shorted or open is the general way they fail not always but you get a map error it would replace the actual manifold pressure reading with a ERR same with the temperature sensors same with the crank sensor so you'd immediately know what it was and if you understand the system you can work around that hopefully keep the, the airplane in the air and get it over an airport and uh, get it down safely so okay that sounds good enough Ross, you described a, a mixture control through the cockpit monitor. Um, how does that work, and what does that allow you to do? Yeah, it's just a potentiometer, so it takes up about one square inch of panel area. It's got a witness mark at 12 o'clock, and that's 0% correction. And then you can go uh, plus or minus 50% from the program value, so you can lean or rich in 50%. And it will read out a percentage in one of the gauge windows there. It'll show you um, you're at minus 12 or plus... 40 or whatever. That's generally used for leaning at altitude or on Lycoming's maybe running lean of peak, which is common with those engines. Otherwise, if the system's programmed well, you really don't need to touch it very much. I think Peter could maybe talk on that, but I don't touch it much in my airplane. So, Okay, so that's really for fine-tuning. That's not something that you're going to be re required to do at every flight, like a manual mixture knob? Yeah, unless you lean at once you set cruise power, like some people do, they might use that kind of twice per flight, once to lean it, and once when they descend back into the pattern, they'd put it back to the 12 o'clock position. Generally, you're not touching that mm -hmm. much, though. Okay. And the computer has automatic altitude compensation, barometric, as well as manifold pressure. So as you climb, it will automatically trim fuel at the same manifold pressure, or as you pull back manifold pressure, it'll obviously pull back okay. fuel. So. You don't really need to be moving the, the mixture control much as you change the throttle. And I did not hear you mention anything about an air-fuel ratio monitor of any sort. Um, do you not use that in the system, or is that just sort of an option? Uh, we supply them with most systems if people want them, a wideband type for initial tuning. But once the system's tuned and you know what your target exhaust gas temperatures are, most people don't pay too much attention to that anymore. Probably just use for the first maybe 10 hours yeah. or something. Okay. 
Okay. Well, um, I think that's a, a good overview. Are there any options? Uh, we talked about the, the dual system and the, and the fuel only versus fuel and ignition. Were there any other options that a builder might uh, kind of run down the list and decide to, to use or not use? Yeah, there's three other options, I guess, that we offer people. One is a, a PC data logging option. Basically, you can hook our ECU to a Windows device, and you can uh, look at all the parameters streaming out of the computer in real time. So it displays all the sensor parameters, as well as things like injector duty cycle. Um, it allows you to log all that and see everything. You can log it graphically or you can log it in text format at very high rates. So for some of the people like racing at Reno in the sport class, they want to download that stuff and look, be able to look at it in very fine detail. Uh, next option would be the digital fuel flow. The computer computes how long the injector is open and how many injector pulses, and it can uh, output a pulse train like a flow scan or a red cube mechanical transducer. That would hook to your G3X or Dynon, whatever you're using there, to display fuel flow and totalize. Uh, most guys are buying that. You know, it, it eliminates a mechanical transducer. It's lighter, cheaper, more reliable, more accurate. And then the final thing, which uh, Peter just got recently on his, is the uh, individual cylinder fuel trim. So this allows you to uh, add or subtract 10% to fuel to each cylinder individually. So if you had one cylinder that was running a bit lean, say number four, consistently or at any time, you can add as much fuel to that as you want to to make it even with all the others. So you get the same air-fuel ratio in each cylinder. Even if each cylinder isn't providing the same amount of horsepower, at least we can get the air-fuel ratio the same. And by doing that, we'll be able to lean all cylinders as far as they can go, especially on the Lycomings where we go lean of peak. We can get them all to peak simultaneously and the engine can run very, very smooth and very, very lean if you want it to safely without uh, getting a lot of roughness. So those are the three main options that people people buy. Okay, well, good. And this is a good point to just jump in. And these are my own thoughts. And Peter, I want, I'd like to hear yours as well. But I believe that one of the biggest problems that AeroV pilots are going to have is you have to get the engine set up to where all four cylinders are running relatively close to each other. And that's hard to do with the stock intake log. It doesn't mixture, it doesn't distribute the mixture terribly even over every RPM range. You can get it where it's pretty good in, in cruise or, or if you lean aggressively on the ground, it's not so bad. But trying to get it perfect across the entire RPM and operational range is challenging. If you can't get it where each cylinder is, is developing the same relative power, and it's not that two are working really hard and two are loafing because um, you just kind of get the mixture that you get. You're never going to get maximum performance out of your engine. And you're going to get some some detrimental side effects, such as, um, say, your forward cylinders that are running really rich and your rear cylinders that are running really lean and excessive carbon buildup and things like that. So the ability to, to precisely put the appropriate amount of fuel in each cylinder allows your engine to make more power overall because they're all running at potential. It gives you less internal problems due to a, a, a very diverse mixture setup from cylinder to cylinder. And it just gives you that, that real smooth, easy running operation. And Peter, I know we've talked about this quite a bit uh, ourselves. What have you seen in practice along those lines? 
<clears throat> Thanks for the question, Jeff. Um, in, in my opinion, there are two important things for your aeroplane, and the one is prop selection. You, you really have to pick the right prop for your plane. And the second one is plenum design, which is kind of what you're referring to. The standard log manifolds that you get on most VW conversions, um, the, the runner lengths on them are, are just not optimal. So you, you do get reversion taking place on them pretty easily. And and it, it's it's it can be so bad, and, and I'll get Ross to chime in and maybe explain it a little better. Uh, you know, because we do not have um, cam position sensors, um, you know, the motor starts at a different point and it's a batch-fired uh, system. So you may find that on one flight you're, you're really running economically and on another flight you're, you're not running as economically as you thought you were and you're like, well, what's changed from flight A to flight B? And, and basically it, it's really just the point at which the injector started firing and, and where the motor started running. And that all hinges around reversion um, on the aircraft. The log manifolds, like I said, are, are not ideal because of the runner lengths. And having said that, though, I just flew to Florida and back with stock Sonics log manifolds, and um, I was testing the new option that, that Ross and them programmed in for me, which was basically the individual field trim that he had mentioned. And even with the poor design, I was able to balance the two fronts out so that there was absolutely zero temperature difference on the EGTs on the fronts and the two backs, there was zero too. However, the fronts were running cooler, as you had mentioned. I think they, as a rule, will run cooler because of what we've just explained. It looks like fuel tends to accumulate on the front just because of the velocity of the air that's moving in there. Um, but certainly the, the individual fuel trims make a, a somewhat lacking um, runner length turn into a pretty reasonable usage for the VW and, and you can get very good fuel economy if you do have the individual fuel trim uh, option on it and how it works basically is you can <coughs> excuse me adjust them in flight so basically you'd get up to altitude, you'd look at what altitude you are and uh, not that that matters, but you'll be at say 3,000 feet of safe altitude is maybe what I was trying to say. And then you would go to the fuel trim options and you'd look at your EGTs and let's just say the, the hottest EGT was at 1400 degrees and the, the, the cylinder um, which it's paired up with on the right hand side was at 1350. Well, you can now either rich in one or lean the other one out to get them both running, you know, either at 1350 or 1400. And, and you can do the same on the fronts. And, and yes. that, that makes a huge difference, Jeff, to being able to do that, to get the, the best fuel economy and, and, and not only an increase in the economy, but a, a decent burn and negate some of the things you mentioned, like, you know, undue lead buildup on, on some of the richer running cylinders. Peter, yes. Would you, would you please define what you mean by reversion? Okay. Um, and Ross, you, you you probably have a better handle on that. But basically, um, it, it, it's it's a pretty technical thing. There's there's valve overlap that goes on. But in in layman's terms, if you if you kind of look at it, um, where you have a log manifold, and and for folks that are, are not familiar with what we're talking about. 
Um, it's basically uh, a manifold on the V. You find them on most VWs that that basically uh, may have a very short runner length on them. What happens is when you have an uh, um, induction stroke on on one of the um, pistons, the velocity of the air is pretty high and starts moving rapidly forward. Um, and so what happens is the front cylinders um, seem to get more fuel than the back, just based on the velocity of the cylinder, it scavenges some of the fuel that's really meant for the back cylinder. And that's just through no fault of its own. It's just based on the design. So what happens is you get some of the charge that was meant for in the Sonics, uh, or let's just say in the Aero V case, you, you get some of the fuel that was meant for the back cylinder ending up moving towards the front and the next induction cycle the, that the intake valve opens on the front actually gets a slightly richer mixture uh, than the back. And Ross, please feel free to add to that. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Peter's experimented uh, a bit with... Uh intake manifolds on the VW and that's very interesting his results there and I think he's going to build another one still so we'll see what that one's like we found with most engines it's best to have a fairly large central plenum and then uh, equal length equal angle individual runner for each port that way uh, everything's equally acoustic the timing of the pulses is all equal and there's uh, no very little reversion happening there. Each one receives the same weight of charge when the valve opens. And uh, I built quite a few intake manifolds for cars and aircraft. And uh, we pretty much tried almost everything. We find that that works the best. So if you have a good manifold, uh, you may not need the fuel trim so much. If you have a bad manifold, you probably will need it. Uh, some of the Lycomings, the updraft Lycomings, uh, the exhaust gas temperature variation is up to 220 degrees between the leanest and richest. It's really terrible. And, uh, it's pretty significant. Yeah. It's, it's a godsend for those guys to be able to get the same air-fuel ratio. Because if you try to lean the engine and uh, one is quite lean, the other three are rich, you're limited by that lean cylinder, how far you can go before it gets very rough. If we can balance them all to have the same air-fuel ratio and they all peak at the same time, uh, one guy experimented, he ran 250 degrees lean of peak, and he says, still running smoothly. He says, incredible. Of course, the engine doesn't make any power doing that, but he said the fuel burn was way, way, way down. And of course, so was the TAS, but he was just amazed at how lean you could run because everything was equalized. I'm a fan of running lean of peak. Are you two guys, Peter and Ross? Um. I don't think it's been well proven on the VWs, but in the Lycoming world, it's pretty much been accepted by the majority of people. There's a lot of science behind it, less engine wear, way lower fuel burn, uh, very clean combustion chambers, piston tops, um, lots of guys going well over TBO with no valve issues. So lots of old wives' tales. Some of the old guys might not embrace it, but uh, at least say in the RV and Lycoming world, pretty well. I'd say 75% of the people are doing it these days. Yeah, I like Yeah, it's only really a problem when you, you know, you have a, a really poor distribution where you can get three of your cylinders lean a peak and they're running pretty good, but that fourth one is just just unhappy and complaining. And that's kind of what we tend to find with Jabiru stock intakes and the VW intakes and all that. Yeah, we've done quite a few Jabiru too. They also have quite a terrible stock induction system of the carburetor and the uh, people report. Same with the O200 Continentals. 
we've seen as much as 25% lower fuel burn at the same TAS on some ones that have very terrible designs. If you've got a very good design, the EFI doesn't, you know, might give you five or 8%. It's nowhere near the same sort of gain. So a lot of it's dependent on how terrible uh, your factory intake is. Yeah, and I want to just comment on the AeroV specifically on the intake. So, yeah, we're being a little bit critical about the intake logs. Those are those red anodized elbows that bolt onto the heads. Yeah. So, from a performance standpoint, they're not very well balanced, but we, we kind of knew that. A lot of the VWs are not really well balanced anyway. The Jabiru is no better. But what the AeroV gives you is a really, really excellent form factor. It's, it's packaged really well. It attaches to the intake. It has a lot of really good benefits that they've designed into that log. But an equal mixture distribution is really tough to get. And Gary, this is, I think, where you've had a lot of your success. You kind of get it all where in flight, where you lean it out, um, you get closer to a very uniform running mixture distribution in flight in cruise. You don't always get that in all conditions. And that's, I think, one of the, one of the huge attractions to the EFI is that you can get that almost all the time everywhere now. And when you don't get it exactly right, you got a knob on the panel that'll get you there. Uh, yeah, and that's so. Knob yeah, the, the go ahead, Peter. I was going to say that knob on the panel you're referring to, which Ross calls the mixture control, is really and an, it, it's a great uh, add-on to have in the cockpit. Um, w when you go to your initial setup, Jeff, um, it for me anyway, it was a godsend because you, you, you get a bunch of values from Ross and them and, and it's pretty well set up to get the motor started. And then basically when you get it to a certain RPM range, you use the mixture knob inside the cockpit and um, you basically tune by ear at that stage if you don't have a, 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 a air fuel ratio monitor uh, running in your system. You tune it by, by ear, and then basically you record the amount, which Ross was saying. You can lean, you know, 50% or reach in 50%. So you look at the the uh, controller in the cockpit, and it says um, minus 20%. You go to the table, and it's a binary value, and you change it by 20%, and, and you're done. It's it's the end of the deal. If you find yourself, um, you know, in, in a flight condition that you're maybe climbing and, and you see some temperatures going up, you use the mixture knob just like a mixture control and you richen it up a little bit. When you get back into cruise, you just lean it out. It's it's fantastic and very simple. Yeah. Okay, well, Peter, let's talk about your specific system. And what I'd like you to do, and this might be a good time to for listeners to go and reference the presentation, I'd like you to walk us through your system just from from tank to pumps to carb or carb to to intake uh, and then you know back to return and all that walk us through your system and how you put it all together and and how everything works okay Jeff thank the the era V and the sonics and the fuel tank setup lends itself to this in, in a very easy manner so basically the fuel tank, would act as a header tank. It's already elevated above there, and you really don't need any headers that you pump into. Um, in in my case, I have a pre-filter where uh, before it gets to the pumps, um, it, it it'll get you know grab some of the larger particles if there were any small enough to pass through the pump, and then after the pump, you have a high pressure um, smaller orifice, uh, not orifice, but smaller mesh filter, which, you know, 10 micron is, is probably not a bad size, although I've seen people use larger. 
mine's a 10 micron. Um, that goes then to the fuel rail, which, you know, crosses across the motor, goes to the other fuel rail, and then ends up going to the fuel pressure regulator, which um, the excess fuel Ross was talking to about earlier will just pass back into the tank. The Sonics tank has basically got all these holes available for you just to plumb into. So it makes it a real easy installation from a plumbing standpoint. Um, from my experience, I'd like to mention what I used. Um, it, it, it runs under a slightly higher pressure. I run mine at about 35 PSI. Um, and you know, any fuel under pressure, you probably want to keep in the pipes. Um, what I found to be very successful in my case was using O-ring boss fittings, um, getting rid of the O-ring, and then just putting a stato seal in. For those folks that are not sure what a stato seal is, it's basically an aluminum washer um, with an O-ring in the center of it. So you, you can't over-tighten it and, and uh, damage the O-ring, but it, it means you can tighten the fitting down pretty well, and um, it's been very successful. A lot of folks will use um, pipe thread fittings. Um, you know, it, it, it's a preference. Um, I just think with pipe thread, pipe thread fittings from myself, um, if, if you're a novice and don't know much about pipe thread fittings, I suggest you read up about them to get proper thread engagement and use, you know, good quality approved sealants when, when you do tighten them up. Um, and, and, and that, that, in my case, has proved to be very successful from the leaks. Um, moving on then, basically, I think... Peter, yes. Be before, before you keep moving, um, you, where are you attaching your fuel pumps? Like, where do you, do you come through the firewall to a gascalator and then a gascalator to fuel pumps, or do you eliminate the gascalator? And where do you mount the fuel pumps? Right. I, I do not have a gascalator, but I do have a low-point drain, but it's not, not in the form of a gascalator. Uh, the fuel pumps, well, correct. You you come, you come. in my case, I have one of my, the, the pre-fuel filter I have inside the cockpit, which is relatively easy to get to, and then I come through the cockpit, and then um, I attach to the fuel pumps, which are mounted to the firewall of the plane. After that, I go through the high-pressure filter, and then basically just plumb into the fuel rails, cross over the fuel rail, and then back into the fuel pressure regulator. And um, I, I'm I'm using AN6 braided hose, um, and and then I've covered them up with some fire sleeve, Jeff. Just so you're putting the fuel pumps on the uh, engine side of the firewall. Yes. Yes. And do both fuel pumps tie, in, um, you know, back together into a single line, or do you run them selectively where you can have two switches for each pump? You, you have individual switches for the pumps. And, and so they're totally independent. Um, you could use both pumps on takeoff and landing as you do in most commercial operations on some of the smaller aircraft. Um, and then obviously in cruise, you can you know, just shut one of them off and, and off you go. Pretty good trick. To make sure that they're both working too. And Ross, 35 PSI is pretty typical for your system. It seems a little low compared to some of the other ones I've dealt with. Um, yeah, it varies with manifold pressure. So at idle, it would be probably around 35 and uh, wide open throttle where there's no vacuum around 45, 50. 
Um, depends a bit on the injectors, how much horsepower the engine's making, but somewhere in the 35 to 50 range is normal. Okay. Okay, and Peter, you mentioned uh, using the molded-in fittings to return fuel. Which fitting are you returning fuel into? Oh, um, th- there's a fitting right at the back of the tank, right up top of the tank. So it, it's, excuse me, it's my pooch. Whoops. Um, I think Sonics may use that to give you um, your fuel level indication. I'm not sure. I used it to return the fuel in. It, it's it's basically a... a um, yeah, it's an eighth-inch NPT uh, molded-in fitting. That's their upper sight glass fitting on the standard tank. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's that's where I'm returning into. And then the newer tanks that don't have any molded-in fittings, they use oops fittings. So you could add an oops fitting wherever was convenient, even over by the filler neck if you needed. Absolutely, yes. And and it circulates the fuel pretty well, like um, Ross was mentioning. You know, you're returning a bunch of fuel all the time. And so that that tends to take care of any vapor locks as well. You know, you're keeping reasonably cool fuel circulating through it all the time. Ross? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a that's a big difference between this and, say, a Bendix fuel injection. You'd find uh, have some terrible hot start problems on very hot days, especially on a hot engine. You do a refueling stop, and you can see people grinding bonanzas and stuff like that over. With the EFI, two things. As soon as you turn the fuel pump on, it rips all the hot fuel out of pretty well the whole fuel system secondly the high pressure raises the boiling point of the fuel probably well above you know where it's actually at so those two things if you had vapor lock it's immediately gone as soon as you turn the fuel pump on and get fuel pressure and replace all the hot fuel with cold fuel so vapor lock is gone pretty well in all cases we have people flying this stuff in the uh Outback on Jabiru engines, you know, plus 45, plus 50 Celsius. Uh, a guy that does test flying for us in California, I think it was 108 Fahrenheit there. Last year, he purposely cold or hot soaked the airplane for 10 minutes after a flight. Started right up and idled perfectly. He said, man, this is a lot better than the old Bendix system. So <laughs> another, another advantage there. Yeah. Okay. Um, so... That- Jeff, did you have any other questions on the plumbing side? No, that that answers that piece. But the second part is um, your fuel rail. And so, Ross, looking at the website, it looks like, you know, those are your two options. Four individual hoses that run one hose to each injector. Or you do a, a kind of a loop system where you have a hose to a rail on two injectors. And then you connect that to the other rail of fuel injectors. So what what are the po- the pros and cons of doing each? And Peter, what did you do on yours? Yeah, I'll uh, talk first on that. Um, yeah, it kind of depends on the setup. Fuel rails have their own set of possible issues. Uh, they have to be very well aligned. So they have to be perfectly milled 90 degrees so that there's no pressure on the O-rings there to make sure they seal well. The advantage of them is there's very little fuel volume uh, available that's not purged by the fuel flow. So they're probably the best as far as uh, vapor, preventing vapor lock. Um, on most engines these days, we are using individual lines because vapor lock just doesn't seem to be much of an issue and uh, it's easier to plumb on a wider variety of engines. So we're using an individual dash three line from the from a central fuel block one line to each injector 
because the injector, the dash three lines a very low volume, very small hole in the middle. Um, there's not much hot fuel there anyway. So it kind of depends on what fits under the cowling the best, what's cleanest, what your preference is. They both work fine. They've both been used. So, Okay, and Peter, what are you doing on yours? On mine, I used fuel rail, which is basically, once again, the Dash 6 fuel rail, which is just an aluminum extrusion that you buy. Um, I've added some links in the bottom of the presentation to the areas where I got the stuff. And so um, for the O-ring boss fittings, um, you 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 got to get those edges pretty well, like Ross says, at 90 degrees so that you uh, you get a pretty good seal. That can be achieved on just about any disc sander if you if you take your time. Um, in the fuel rail, you basically then drill um, holes for your injectors. You can buy a specialized drill that can do it in a single operation, or you could choose to do it with a couple of drills and, and do multiple operations. Um, on the... On the VW, the fuel rail works pretty well um, in terms of you can attach the fuel rail pretty easy to the existing two screws that that you um, secure the log manifolds on with. So for me, the fuel rails worked out really well, and you may be able to see them later on in the presentation. And then uh, basically just take a hose that crosses over the, the motor in the front or the engine in the front and then goes, you know, Back the other way. Um, I find it. I found it very simple to work with, Jeff. The the fuel rail. Yeah. No. No. Peter, this is probably the biggest thing that um, that someone needs to kind of get their head wrapped around is what do I, as the builder, have to modify on my engine? And those intake logs are are something that you're going to have to modify either for your injectors and rail or the individual injector. Uh, bosses where they mount individually. Yeah. What did What do you have to do there? Okay, so um, if you choose to go with the individual fuel um, trim option that that SDS provides, then then I feel confident that you can use the existing log manifolds to get reasonably good results. You know, um, it, it it'll get you ninety five percent of the way there. If you're if you're pretty anal about it, then you need to build yourself a planner. But in terms of the log manifolds, it's it's really very, very simple. Um, you, you can buy some aluminum stock and then just turn it down. Um, I've put a drawing in the presentation there that'll show you kind of an example of what you do. But basically, if you just get a, a piece of aluminum pipe that it's reasonably thick walled. You you basically drill the center out, and then you put a shoulder on it, and basically you've got your bung for the um, log manifold. In the log manifold, you drill two holes, and in my case, I literally used some JB Well because it's under vacuum, um, so you're really just trying to seal some air off. Uh, I, I doubt whether it'll pop out. Once the fuel rail is on and uh, has the injector in there, it, it pretty well captures it in the log manifold. And and it, it's about a whole evening's worth of work to get the log manifold set up for this, Jeff. Okay. So I'm looking at the picture, and uh, I think the picture you're referring to in the presentation. And so you're going to drill two holes in kind of the outside flat edge of the log, one for each injector. And then you have to JB weld on the bung for the injector to those holes. Is that what you said? Uh, no. So, so the the bung is is at least the length of the injector that's going to the part that that plugs into the bung, right? And so you basically drill the hole um, and and make sure that it's a reasonably tight fit for the bung to drop in that hole, right? 
I see. Okay. Yeah, and then you just take a little bit of JB Weld, you know, um, you, you put it around the, the outer edge of the bung, and then you push it into the log manifold and leave it overnight. And it it sits in there for a long time <laughs> until, until you take a hammer to it. Okay, so rather than trying to weld a bung in place, they're essentially glued in place. It's You don't need to weld them in, in my experience. Like I said, once you put the injector in, and um, you put the fuel rail on top of the injector, and then you secure the fuel rail with two nuts that the that the um, that the log manifold is going to be put onto back back onto it. It'll never move. You, you you can pick you can use that as an attach point for a crane to to take your motor out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Peter, it might be helpful to get some good close-ups of the, the rail, the attachment to the manifold screws, and, and uh, you know, the injectors and all that. A really good close-up shot to illustrate it would be very helpful. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll do that. Unfortunately, you're right. It doesn't show it. Even the, the last picture where the, pl- the plenum options are installed, um, uh, unless I point it out, you probably won't see where it's attached. So I- I'd gladly add that to the presentation, Jeff, and um, – Okay. Uh, it's going to mean I got to take a picture of it at some point. I, I don't think I have those on hand, but I'll be glad to. Okay, that's great. Yeah. Okay, Ross. Uh, from your perspective, um, it, which do you recommend? I know. I know you said it really kind of matters about packaging, but what would you recommend to someone who calls you up and says, "Hey, I want to do this. What should I do?" Well, I think uh, if you're going to use the kind of the factory Aero V manifolds there, I think uh, follow what Peter's done because it all fits under there quite nicely. It works. It's been reliable for over 600 hours. Can't really dispute any part of that. So um, if people are more comfortable building their own plenum style manifold, you'll probably end up TIG welding injector bosses onto the runners right near the ports. And he has a picture of that uh, here as well, so you can see what that looks like. I think that's probably a Rotax manifold, but same sort of idea. And, those are uh, all for VWs there, Ross. <laughs> oh, okay. They're all VW. Well, that's good. Those are all my creations. <laughs> okay. Well, very as nice, I, as, very as nice welding on that one in the left. I, I do think left. the simple rail and the crossover uh, tubing works really, really easy for probably most of us. Yeah. It looks like very, very neat and simple installation uh, with minimal amount of fabrication. Which yeah. one are you referring to, Gary? Are you uh, talking about the one, the one on the right where you're using the uh, arrow, arrow conversion? Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Like I say, that's an evening's worth of work to get the the fuel rail and injectors mounted on that. It, well, that, that means it's a week's worth for me, but I got the point. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, I think that really is if if we can get people to understand. The approach on how do you you go from a box of parts to installed on your engine that really is the the key thing. Everything else is just where you mount the components. Where do I mount the fuel pumps? Where do I put the fuel computer? You know all that kind of stuff. Yes. So I, I, that's why I think a good close up of that is really going to set people's minds at ease and on how to accomplish it. And and Jeff, if you go to slide number six, which uh, is injector bung ideas, if you look at the little picture in the center. Um, it has some dimensions on which are not accurate at all. It's just a picture that I stole of somebody's website, but it gives you uh-huh. it, it it gives you the idea as to how the bung is manufactured. If you look on the right hand side, you'll see somebody 
is is starting to drop that bung into um, a, a manifold there, and, and it's literally that easy. So you take some stock, which I highlighted on the left, the picture on the left, um, which is going to end up looking like the little picture in the middle, and then you drop it into the manifold like a picture on the right. And so those are yeah. the options. The other options are, like Ross said, you you take your TIG welder and you either buy a bung set from him and you weld it onto your um, induction manifold, or um, you make a bung like the center picture at the bottom and you TIG weld that onto the the manifold. just depends on what level you come for what level you're comfortable with and who you have for friends that can, you know, fabricate and weld. Um, but right. if, you get, if you're going to use the Sonics log manifolds, I would suggest speaking to SDS and make sure you get the individual fuel trim. Very easy um, and, and works pretty decent. If you, okay. if you want the best plenum, you need to go to slide seven and look at the, the plenum that's... Uh, indicated in the right-hand picture on the top. Yeah, and I think that's interesting, but honestly, I'm going to leave that for, for people to do further research on their own. Uh, I really want to focus on how can you reuse the majority of what a stock ROV includes and very simply add it on. So I'm just going to kind of leave it there for, for future research, and we won't talk too much about custom plans. Okay. Okay, um, Ross uh, and Peter, actually, I guess both of you, um, one of the ideas I think that is really, really attractive is to reuse the aero injector as a throttle body injector. I believe this gives you a, a second level of backup where when you want to fly under EFI, you pull the aero injector mixture knob to idle cutoff, no fuel flows through the carb, and now you're using your injectors and your computer. And if for whatever reason you have an issue, you simply disable the fuel injection system, push the mixture knob to full rich, and now you're flying under completely manual carbureted operation. Is there any inherent problem in doing that? And do you have to modify the aero injector with a position sensor or anything like that to make that work? I'm not Ross, sure if, I'm not if, sure if uh, Peter, are you running a throttle position sensor on yours or no? No, and, okay. and I, I can answer that. You, you can use the stock standard AeroV uh, AeroCarb and you don't need to make any modifications other than I'm not sure if they have a vacuum port on it or not. But if not, you, you'd, you'd have to, you know, maybe weld a, a bung onto the, um, the wire tube to get some vacuum from there. Yeah, and that's what they do with the turbo manifold is they just they weld in a little uh, stainless steel bung um, a little further upstream to get manifold pressure. Yeah, other than that, it'll work just fine. And you just got to understand with a slide like um, the AeroCarb, you at, at higher vacuum settings, just you, you need to be able to overcome, you know, the, the, the slight friction on higher vacuum, um, like, you know, at idle or something like that. So, that, that, but it'll work fine, Jeff. Okay. Yeah. I really think that's a, a, a big distinction because it gives you one more way to mitigate a, a, a shutdown, you know, injector system. Um, now, how valuable is that? Well, everybody's going to do the math and come up with a little bit different answer. I, I think, though, for someone who wants to hedge their bets, it's a wonderful way to provide some reliability. Yeah, I agree. We've got a few, like Homing and other guys that have uh, retained the carburetor as a throttle body. They leave it in a mixture idle cutoff, and if they ever need to, hopefully when they open that up and the float blow fills up, you've got 
power in two or three seconds. So uh, why not? Yeah. Ross, I got a couple of uh, specific questions on my list. Um, I think I saw a reference to a limp home mode. Yeah, there's no limp home mode in our computer. We just try to mitigate uh, most sensor failures. So, okay. Well, let me just let me let me rephrase and back up a little bit. If SDS does not include a limp home mode, um, why is that significant? Because I think we're familiar with limp home from our our car applications, and what. What is the advantage to either including it or, or not including it? In the automotive world, limp home modes are usually when there's a sensor, multiple sensor failures. The computer will default using remaining sensors to around 15 to 30 horsepower. And that's enough to get you home at a fairly decent speed in the car. However, in an airplane, uh, 10% power, you're just extending your glide somewhat to some sort of landing spot that probably isn't too attractive maybe. So we we uh, just mitigate sensor failures and our system will run with all sensors failed simultaneously except the crank sensor. Yeah, Jeff, I think that kind of feeds into the question I asked earlier too. He, he basically does have a default uh, um, sensor value if one were to fail except for the, for the crank position sensor. Yeah, which which one could argue is a limpoed mode, but it, it just keeps the motor running. Um, yeah, we, we try to keep it running at high power. That's, that's a more like full power, yeah, pretty close yeah. to it. So between the mixture knob and the throttle angle, you can probably dial power between 50 and 100% with all the other sensors fail as long as a crank sensor is working. So if the map sensor fails, it's the load sensor. Uh, you can still get the airplane back over the airport and probably get the thing down on a fast approach and then cut power, you know, when you're over the threshold, if you got decent amount of runway. Yeah, I think probably the, the scary part about repurposing an automotive ECU is what are those hidden factors that might cause my engine to go into limp home mode, which is just going to crash me anyway, um, that that are maybe hanging out in the code that I don't know about. Well, it's nice when you start with a clean sheet and you don't have those those relics that are waiting to rear their ugly head. Yeah, and that's that's a big deal. There have been lots of people successful use the factory ECU, car ECU, and lots of people that have been hurt, even killed doing it because uh, any computer into the 2000s generally is running over a million lines of code, and a lot of that is diagnostic for emissions, but it's also tied into the chassis, like fuel tanks, pressure sensors, all kinds of stuff that people don't even know about. So when it's looking for a, a signal from that sensor and it's not there because it doesn't have that massive harness, it doesn't have all those sensors your car has, you don't know what it's going to do. And the only people who know what it's going to do are the people that wrote the code and they're not going to tell you because they have no interest in having their computers used in an airplane. So Right. That's a big advantage, I guess, of SDS. It's designed as simply as possible just to run the engine. We are not concerned with any other sensors that are not on the engine, really. So yeah, your, your door position sensor and wheel speed sensor are yeah. just going to get you in trouble. You know, you don't yeah. need them. Yeah. In the Subaru world of early experimenters using the factory computer, they found out the hard way after 30 seconds where the speed sensor input wasn't there, but the RPM was very high. Computer goes, why is this engine at 5,000 RPM for 30 seconds, but the car's not moving? Would shut the fuel pump relay off, which was kind of right after takeoff, had about 300, 400 feet. So, 
uh, a number of people went into the grass or trees until they discovered what was going on there. So things like that. That's why a lot of people have, even if the engine was fuel injected, like the later Subarus, they don't want to use the factory computer there. And that's one of the reasons we sold so many for that engine. And uh, the Volkswagen's no different. I don't think you'd want to put a, a GM computer out of a 2005 car on there and try to take some of the code out and hope that it works okay because you just don't know one day something's out of parameter and uh, something bad happens. So, Yeah. Ross, uh, what kind of maintenance requirements uh, do the system carry and what does the user kind of need to keep in mind on a, on a year-to-year basis? Um, if you've got ignition as well as fuel, probably you'd be taking the spark plugs out to do a compression test anyway and just looking at the condition of the plugs and making sure maybe testing the resistance of all the wires. If you're just doing fuel only, only the fuel filters really need looking at. Maybe the conditions of hoses, making sure they're not chafing on something, but there really is no maintenance. Uh, we've, got, we've got high time guys have got over 2,000 hours each on these things. No problems, really no maintenance there. Making sure maybe the hall sensor bracket and bolts are you know tight, but literally five or 10 minutes with a wrench and looking at hoses, that's it. There's nothing to disassemble and check like a magneto or a distributor or something like that. There's really no moving parts. The pintle inside the injector and the flying magnets are really the only moving parts. So there's nothing to wear out anymore. Mm -hmm. Peter, when you look at maintenance on your engine, uh, if you have looked down through your spark plugs, what do the condition of your head and pistons and valves look like? Um, they, they're really good. Um, as maintenance items, um, I, I really have nothing that I do on the fuel injection other than what Ross, Ross has mentioned. Um, as far as um, batteries are concerned, I generally replace mine every three to four years. Um, I, I could do it sooner, but they just seem to last that, that, that long. So I haven't done the batteries, but maybe every three or four years. Um, what battery would, are you using? I'm using the stock one that, that Sonics uses, the Odyssey. Okay, and a single Odyssey? Yes. Uh, okay. Actually, uh, uh, on my on my YX, I had a single Odyssey. On, on the Sonics I built, I actually put a second little 11-amp-hour battery in there just as, as a backup. Um, I, I've never needed to use it, but, but I did put it in on the second one for some Yeah, I think... Dual batteries are a proven way to, to give you a redundant electrical system and probably not a bad idea. Right, and it'll it'll run a long time on, on a relatively small battery. You know, you just got to make sure the battery's large enough just to crank the motor and you'll be fine. Um, then um, as far as the head condition is, Jeff, I, I don't know what is standard practice amongst most folks. My heads, pistons, everything look pretty clean. Um you, you know, we do use low-lead fuel, so you are going to get some deposits of the lead on there. But generally speaking, they they well manageable. I pull my heads every 200 hours, um, and I have a valve, valve job done on them um, and replace at least the exhaust valves at 200 hours. And that, that's just that's just me doing a maintenance item. Uh, it, it's, it's not, I guess, required, but I just do that every 200 hours. Now, so when you do that, do you have problems with the seats that need to be addressed? Do you, do you put in new seats and, and guides, or do you just change the valves and, and lap them? Just lap and change the valves. Okay. Well, that's not a bad way to just approach maintenance right there, proactively do it. Right, right. 
and and on the VW, it is it's it's really so easy. I mean, it's eight bolts and the heads come off. You know, yeah, it's a little harder. I know you got to, you know, get the uh, push rod tubes stretched out again and stuff like that. But generally speaking, it's not a big deal. It it's it's an afternoon's work to pull them and another afternoon to put them back once you're done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the average guy, let's face it. It takes quite a while for them to accumulate two hundred hours, right? Yeah, that's a you know that's probably at most every other year that you're doing that. If you're doing a hundred hours a year, yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's a lot okay. of flying. <laughs> now, have you run both uh, car gas and av gas through the system? What I what I did on the YX, um, Jeff, and and just before I answer that question, as far as the air fuel ratio. Um, sensor is concerned or the O2 sensor that you're going to have to put in there. Um, I, I tried that right up front, but it, it pretty much doesn't last very long with the, the leaded fuel, just just so you know that. Um, the, the O2 sensor will clog up fairly quickly on O2. Ross, you might have some hours that you can quote, but uh, I, I know it didn't last very long on mine. No. Yeah, we find the same thing. We see sensors lasting anywhere from two to three hundred hours on hundred low lead, and we're not sure why the huge variation in life there. Um, we've got was some, that two hundred to three hundred, or two hours to three hundred hours? Two hours to three hundred hours. So okay. some guys, so, yeah, all over the map. Some guys are very disappointed. <laughs> so right. Bosch has Bosch has provided some some guidance. Yep. Sorry. Go ahead. I heard something in the neighborhood, pretty much around 50 hours or so. Yeah. I'd say that seems to be the average lifespan from what uh, customers report to us. So that's more than enough time to tune it. Usually, you should be able to get a pretty good tune on this in less than five hours. So usually right. the sensor lasts that long. But just so you know, they're not going to last indefinitely, Jeff. And then um, as far as mixing fuel, um, in, in the YX, I used to go – 50% car gas, 50% av gas, and, and I try to stick to um, mo gas that, that was ethanol-free and the highest octane that I could find. Um, I think if you go strictly with car gas and and maybe car gas that's laced with ethanol, um, I, I believe the vapor pressure is one of the issues that you should just be cognizant of um, so that you, you don't start boiling fuel at a much reduced temperature, right? I would suspect, though, with the pressurization, though, like Ross said, that really should help and take care of most of that. There is, there is, and and Ross makes a very valid point. But the problem is, it could happen before the fuel enters the fuel pumps. Yeah, that's our only real concern is prior to the pump. That's where you'll get yeah. vapor lock there, just as the pump is pulling on it. But if you've got the pumps mounted low and the tank is high, the inlet's yeah. flooded. There's almost no chance of that happening. But uh, right. Certainly, if you got winter gas, it's 115 degrees, and you're in Denver. <laughs> that's not a good combination, perhaps. I, mean, so. I guess it's a good idea that I put my fuel pumps way in the back, away from the heat source. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we've we've seen we've seen issues, you know, under extreme conditions, but always prior to the pump. Once a pump puts a fuel under 40 psi, it can't boil really. So right. Right. Yeah. And, and so I wanted to clarify that it's, it could boil ahead of the pump, but not after. So so I hope that answers your question, Jeff. 
Well, it does. And the second part is, do you have any, any tuning differences if you tune for one, but say you tune for a high mix of car gas, but you burn a diet of nothing but 100 low lead on a cross country? Any problems there? You know, to the absolute critical person who has a bunch of uh, gauges that are monitoring, they might find it. I, I didn't see any difference between didn't matter what fuel I used. I mean, once once you've once you've dialed it in, Jeff, it's really a set and forget system. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. And and literally dialing it in is is as Ross had just mentioned. It, it it's probably five hours or less. Uh, once you do your initial tuning on the ground, there's very little to do. You know, you'll go fly maybe one or two flights, and you 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 register parameters and you you know, punch it into the system and you literally done and then from then on it's just fun flying yeah okay well i guess peter my last question is if you look back at your 600 plus hours of operation and and now installing it in two different sonics are there any improvements that you would think for the next time around that you would do on your system no i i'd be quite honest with you i'm extremely happy with what i have um, I, I would not change a single thing, Jeff. Okay. Well, no, that's good. Uh, if your system is refined to the point that you think that uh, it is a, a really good template, then I would encourage people to just copy what you've done, you know, learn from success and then do that. <laughs> Absolutely. That's that's very good advice. And I'd be more than willing to, to have anyone contact me if they, they need advice. Um, you, you know, it, th- whether they take the advice or not really doesn't matter to me because, you know, I've spoken to a lot of guys and I've, I've literally learned from, from people. Everyone has a nugget, Jeff. And then like I started off when we started speaking is I learned so much from your website. Um, you, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. We, we should lean on each other and, and try and get you know, knowledge from individuals that that may have gone this way before absolutely that's one of the major goals of this podcast is to seek out people that have unique experience and then help share that with everyone else so someone who is interested in this can stand on your shoulders and and take it to even higher achievements not having to you know sog through the muck to try to get to where you are now absolutely yeah i agree okay well um I guess I, I would like to get uh, a rough sense of cost on the system. So, Ross, can you talk for a typical Sonic system, what are the costs that builders should budget for? And then, Peter, anything that, you know, extra hardware, the bits and pieces that you source individually, if we can just kind of throw that on at the end. So uh, give a builder a budget in mind to do this. Right. Yeah, I would say uh, probably – in the VW market, cost is a big deal. You know, the engine is maybe something like seven or eight thousand dollars in total, and it's probably hard for some people to justify spending, say, twenty five hundred dollars on a fuel system for it. So it hasn't been that popular. We've sold a handful for Volkswagens over that twenty four years, and same on the Jabiru, probably to some degree. Um, so cost wise, fuel only. If you do a lot of the work yourself, like Peter did. Probably you're looking at around $2,000 US for single computer and most of the components there. Maybe a little bit more. 
So kind of 2,000 to 2,500. If you do fuel and ignition, if you do it on both sets of plugs and buy our throttle body, our injector bosses, you know, all the things you can buy, probably can uh, move that up to nearly $3,500. So some, somewhere in that range, you know, a lot of it depends if you can do all the fabrication welding yourself uh, and everything else, machining. Yep. You can do it like Peter did for probably somewhere between 2000, 2500. Okay. And Peter, those other bits and pieces, if you could just run down the list that you'd have to source and give us a rough budget for those items. Right. Really. Um, I think what, what Rob said there is pretty true. If you, if you're resourceful, you can do it really cheap. For example, uh, when it came to throttle bodies, I went to eBay and and I sourced the throttle body. Um, it's it's it it comes out of a FX140 wave runner, and you know it came with four throttle bodies and four injectors, and and they're always out on eBay, and they range anywhere from eighty dollars to one hundred and twenty. So you could literally get four injectors and a throttle body because it comes with four but you only need to use one for you know around about a hundred bucks and then fuel pressure regulator you're going to probably throw another 50 or a hundred dollars at that and um the rest is going to be in fuel pumps but i think that that's pretty well adequately covered in what ross's estimate comes to two thousand dollars you know they are walbro 393 pumps and they're about 120 a piece so if you want one that's the final cost a little bit of fuel rail. Fuel rail will cost you maybe ten or twenty dollars for a foot. A foot is a lot of fuel rail for a project like this. And then I think most Sonics builders either have some AN6 hose lying around, or they can buy that and the fittings for probably maybe another hundred or two hundred dollars, depending on you know what they have lying around. So I think Ross's estimate for the average builder who doesn't mind. You know, putting some elbow grease into it of two thousand dollars is is you know pretty good estimate. And then obviously, if you want to buy stuff, I think twenty five hundred is adequate for just fuel injection. And when you're looking at an add on cost, you know maybe your plane is flying, but you're you're looking to do something after you've worked the initial bugs out. That's not that bad of a cost, and certainly it's less than trying to pull the engine off and re-engine it with something new. Yeah, I I'd be honest with you, uh, Jeff. I, I I will I would I would rather not go flying than than not fly with my SDS system. I would for the for the amount of hassle-free flying I've had, I've literally had six hundred hours of getting in the plane and going flying. Um, I haven't had seasonal changes. Uh, I haven't had to you know consider fuel options or anything like that. It's it's literally I get in, it fires up. When I get to a destination, I don't care if it's snowing or whether it's, you know, 100 degrees outside. I turn the key and it fires up and off I go. And and I've done some fairly good trips, you know, like North Carolina to Oshkosh, North Carolina to Vic Falls, North Carolina to um, down Florida way, as we all know, with sun and fun and, you know, down the Tennessee ways and, and west of Tennessee. So it's, it's, it's done very well. And, and I would encourage anybody, you know, instead of buying, I don't know, going out to dinner three times a week, go twice a week and, and get yourself a fueling decker system. Um, I, I would highly recommend it to anybody out there. Yeah. 
Well, that is the goal, is to have an airplane that is ready to fly every time you open the hangar door, and you don't have to monkey with it a whole lot. Yeah, and, and that's been the case for me. It really has. Gary, final questions for Peter and for Ross. No, I think we covered it very well. Uh, you know, I just thought my two cents now as as someone who flies with a, with a, with a FADAC engine, it is just absolutely the way to go. Uh, I agree with Peter. It's just turn the key and off you go. Um, I, I would consider. I would encourage everyone to considerly, seriously consider uh, this option uh, versus some of the other things that are out there. I think it would make your life a whole lot easier. Okay. Uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, Ross, I guess I'll just turn this over to you. If you'd like to make any any final summary thoughts and statements, um, to, what, what do you uh, what do you want to leave with the listeners? Well, probably one thing we haven't really covered. Well, we kind of touched on it was the electrical system, um, like we covered before. This is electrically dependent, unless you've got your aero car hooked up there. But uh, if you're not good at wiring, and hopefully you know that. <laughs> Uh, either get somebody to do good wiring for you on this system or maybe don't do it because if you're going to do bad, if you can't ground things properly, you can't crimp things properly, you can't solder, you don't know what good wiring practices are, I would say please don't do this because you'll probably hurt yourself. Everything has to be 100% for this to work well. And we do have some tutorials on YouTube and on a special web page there about how to properly make connections because it's so important. Um, other than that, on, this, on the Sonex, like Peter said, I think this is uh, relatively easy to do compared to something like an RV, which has two tanks and uh, maybe two computers. A wiring complexity goes up some more with two computers. Um, other than that, I think, yeah, we've covered you know a lot of the basics pretty well, and Peter's experience is, I think, very valuable here. You know, he's not uh, new to the game. He's had it on two different airplanes, 600 hours. It's fairly significant, uh, basically no problems. And that's generally what most of our customers say, that at least do good wiring. Uh, we've had, of course, all kinds of people have problems when they don't follow the manual, wire things poorly, don't know anything about fuel fittings. Um, yeah, if you don't know what you're doing, seek, seek advice from somebody who does. Yeah, and we talked at the beginning about some of the disadvantages of an EFI system. One of those is added complexity and potential increased single points of failure. Um, and what you're talking about is exactly how we mitigate those. You have to have good, reliable construction practices that prevent those things from from showing themselves and taking your system out of action. That's right, yeah. And the, uh, the electronics themselves, because we've leaned on the automotive market, which is at that time a massive market. We have thousands of these things out here for decades, uh, literally millions of hours collectively on those 10,000 systems. And uh, we've done a lot of like desert racing, the Baja 1000, where the vehicle is being absolutely beaten to death compared to the automotive. Very, very hot conditions, a lot of vibration, dust, water, and they just take it very reliable stuff at least ours is that doesn't mean all efi systems will be like that but we've got a big track record of you know millions of hours we've got six hundred and fifty thousand flight hours collectively on 2000 systems and uh very few failures we've seen a few sensor failures but most have been non-critical but you like you just said you have to install the stuff with best practices on the plumbing and wiring most important so 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, thinking back to, um, I can think of one particular instance where a Jabiru with the SDS system uh, installed on a Sonics, and what ultimately brought that airplane down was a burn sensor wire that, you know, the, the wire coming from the Hall effect sensor on the crank position got too close to the exhaust and it burned through. And, you know, you gotta, you gotta mitigate stuff like that. You just, you have to understand it's a harsh environment and you have to protect it from things like that. Yeah, we've had uh, that one and one other one on a Titan T-51. So the guy had built an aluminum exhaust manifold, if you can believe that. And the factory test pilot was flying it. The aluminum uh, gave way, as you'd expect there, at uh, high power in the climb. Melted through the crank sensor wire. Engine shut off. Forced landing in the tomato field. So uh, we now have tef- cell wire on there. and We provide fire sleeve and uh, more guidance on don't put this anywhere close to the exhaust. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Yeah. Okay. Well, great. Thanks, Ross. Um, Peter, any final thoughts, recommendations, or advice? Ross, thank you for, for highlighting those things. And, and you're absolutely right. Those are good practices. Um, but don't let that scare anybody away. It, it, the, the good wiring practices are very important, but, um, you know, there's always somebody in the marketplace that that's willing to help you and, and make sure you do it correctly. Um, so don't let that be a point to scare you away. Um, it's it seems like a daunting project. It really isn't. It's it's so easy. And once you accomplish it, you're going to feel so good about yourself. So go save some money and, you know, start fuel injecting your stuff. That's what I'd like to leave people with. Yeah, have confidence in yourself. If you can build an airplane, you can certainly do this add-on. Absolutely, Gary. You're quite right. Yep, I agree. Um, it's helpful to have some mechanical skills, of course, to understand what you're looking at and to know, you know, what's good and bad about plumbing practices and wiring practices. But, uh, uh, yep, contact the guys that have done it, and they'll most I find most uh, home builder and experimental guys are very helpful, willing to share their knowledge, uh, keep everybody safe, and uh, like Jeff said, not to repeat and slog through all the uh, hard lessons that some of us have learned pioneering this stuff. There's no need yeah, to. I re- personally, that re- uh, Peter was invaluable to me on numerous occasions uh, with some Arabic questions that I had. So uh, he's an excellent resource. Well, thank you, Gary. Well, in my thoughts, I look at it as a, a spectrum of options. A lot of people really like the AeroV because it's an engine that is simple and you you become intimately familiar with, with your own engine through the process of assembling it. That gives you a lot of confidence when it comes time to do things like pull the heads off and inspect them or, or change a valve. And uh, I think a lot of people find a lot of satisfaction in that level of confidence in their engine. However, there are some things that, you know, we have learned over the years that you got to just pay attention to in an aerobic. We've talked a lot about those. Carb tuning is certainly one factor that you need to pay attention to. Well, now you can get a lot of the benefits of the lower initial price point for the AeroV, the simple, easy, reliable, you know, maintenance that you need to do. And you can, through a very minimal outlay of, of additional money, you can take it to the next level and you start to enjoy some of the reliability that you get from a little bit more advanced system. The, uh, and then the power output, the smoothness and efficiency at which you run your engine, you get a great bump in all of those things as well. I think it's a wonderful, attractive option, and uh, I would really like to see some others 
follow your system and start installing and flying these. Yeah, I have to say, I guess uh, probably after Peter won the award at Sun and Fun, there I've uh, my I've had an uptick on quoting on VW EFI systems. <laughs> so thanks there, Peter. <laughs> so a lot of people maybe have talked to you or seen the light or. They're at least pricing this stuff. I mean, the price may scare away some people, but at least, uh, yeah, we've had quite a bit of, I guess, new interest, I would say, or, or higher interest in VW EFI since Sun and Fun. That's great news to know. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm satisfied. And um, Jeff, I, I don't know if you have other questions, but the, the last slide in the presentation that, that, or should I say slide 10, actually has some of the parameters. Um, and I think I mentioned that earlier on, but, um, you know, you can have a look at the parameters that that my plane runs on in cruise. And, and it's good for comparison too, that people can look at it and see, well, you know, that's what I see, or maybe that's not what I see. And um, once again, I'd be more than willing to to talk and share other ideas with people too. Yeah. Peter, are you going to be at Oshkosh this year? I'm hoping to be there, Jeff. Um, just depends on schedule and stuff like that. Um, I, I've plan I'm planning on going, but I'm, I'm just not 100% sure. Are you going? Yeah, we're going to be there. And if you do make it, uh, I would love if you would send me a note. I would, I'd like to organize, even if it's just a really simple informal get together at your airplane and, uh, we can all kind of poke and ooh and ah at your installation. If I do go, I'll probably be staying at Wayne Daniels. I don't know if you know where that is. Yeah, actually, uh, there's a, it's one of my favorites and I plan to spend a little time there this year as well. Okay. Yeah. So I'll, I'll let you know ahead of time, Jeff. Okay, sounds great. Uh, Ross, uh, are you going to have any sort of representation at AirVenture this year? Um, we've tried to go the last couple of years, but we find, the, unfortunately, the EAA's liability insurance requirements for display, like vendor displays, is just crushing. And we just decided that can't do it there. Uh, last year, we did have uh, one of my friends from our airport who's done quite a few SDS installations uh, he gave a technical talk in the Canada tent there, and I believe he's doing that again, so people might be able to catch that. Uh -huh. And there will be a couple of other vendors that use our system as well, one with a Murphy Moose with a Chevrolet LS3 engine. He'll, be, he'll have a computer there you can play with and uh, talk to it. He's been flying that for a few years. That's about it for Oshkosh. Fr okay. Frankly, we're so busy. We're so backlogged on ignition system orders and fuel injection. We don't have any time either. Um, I usually make the pilgrimage to Reno to support our sport class racers there in September. So if anyone's out there, I'll be lurking around the sport class pits. And uh, we had a couple of, we've had a couple wins in sport class with our EFI there last year. A uh, new race record, I think it was 402 miles an hour. So we've uh, I try to spend some time with those guys there, but I'm happy to talk with anybody with any engine, any airframe, because we're all pilots. We all love flying. So I love talking to anybody and getting their stories and uh, finding out what they're doing. And it's all good stuff. Yeah. Well, it's always nice to just to, to find a time to make a personal connection, you know, yeah. if you happen to be at the show and stuff like that. And so um, 
if, uh, if people happen to run into you, uh, informally or over at Reno, I think those are great opportunities. But if someone wants to contact you and, and talk about this or, or get more information, where should they go to get that information? Um, yeah, they can go to our website, uh, which is sdsefi.com. Fairly simple to remember that one. Uh, email us. I answer email about 20 times a day, at least six days a week usually. Uh, happy to talk with anyone on the phone too. Despite how busy I am, I'm always happy to talk to pilots and uh, answer any of the questions they might have. And uh, try, you know, I don't really give a sales pitch to people. I just say, here's, like I said before, here's what we've done. Here's what the system can do. And uh, here's the price. And if it's something you're interested in, be happy to help you get it on your airplane and working well. Mm-hmm. And I know that you're active on the Home Built Airplanes Forum as well. Um, so I would point people over there if they want to do a little research and connect with you online. Yeah, I'm very active on the Vans Forum as well as the Home Built Aircraft Forum. So, uh, yep, they're happy. they can post uh, something there on a thread or send me a private message or whatever. So I'm available there too. I'm there every day several times as well. So, Okay. Well, Ross, thank you very much for carving out uh, not an insignificant amount of time to talk to us. I, I have a much better understanding of the system, and I, I really hope this excites a lot of people because, you know, we're all about, in the Sonics community, about doing things at a price point that are not going to break the bank for the average pilot. That's that's the niche that the Sonics excels at. And this just allows you to take your existing AeroV-powered Sonics and take it to the next level at a price that I think we're not going to choke on. So, I'm really excited about it. I want to see these things uh, pop up increasingly in the fleet. Yeah, I hope it does too. And uh, yeah, I want to really thank, uh, you know, all you guys, uh, Gary, Peter, and Jeff for letting me have the opportunity to to talk a little bit about it. And uh, I learned something, you know, like Peter says, everybody's got a nugget. You learn something from everybody that's uh, got experience, you know, flying or building. And uh, like I said, yeah, I've considered the Sonics a few times. And when I retire and have some actual time to build again, uh, I might want something, you know, simple, lightweight, uh, easy to move in and out of the hangar and good performance. I mean, the Sonics does that. So I see, well, see the value in that. Bust your bubble, but uh, I deal with a lot of people retired and everybody tells me they're too busy to do anything once they retire. <laughs> <laughs> I keep yeah, telling well, I'm going to work till I drop, so I'll have some time to play. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be working for a while yet. So, uh, yeah, we've, we've got some new things in the pipeline, so we want to complete those and uh, get them out in the market there. And change, we change the face of experimental aviation a bit, you know, for the RV world, I think, and maybe uh, Sonics world slowly. It'll, it'll take hold there and, uh, we're into some other airframes, you know, a little more than others, but, um, yeah, if we get enough people interested in something and they want something new, we'll often develop, you know, CNC parts or some different features in the electronics too. We are always uh, progressing and we really do like the feedback from people. Some of the best things we've come out with are not our ideas at all. They come from customers and say, could you do this? And, or could you do that? And we go, Hey, that's a pretty good idea. Yeah, we, we should do that. So. Well, great. Thanks again, Ross. Uh, Peter, thank you for what you're doing. Thanks for bringing your airplane, you know, 600 miles, 600 plus miles to Sun and Fun, and then showing it off and, and talking to people and, and putting a very positive face out there for both for Sonics and for SDS. I think you're serving an incredible, valuable function as an ambassador for us, and uh, I thank you for that. Yeah, thank you too, Peter. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. 
Thank you. You guys are very kind. I appreciate that. And just to add, most of the links to what we've spoken about are on the last page of the presentation. Yeah, and if you're looking for sources for individual items, and that's kind of the the, the part that I think is intimidating, uh, what do I need to do myself? How do I do it, and where do I get it? And so you've taken some of the mystery out of there. Yeah, and congratulations on that uh, on the award there too, Peter. That's, uh, that's pretty uh, pretty good. <laughs> your work Thank looks you. very very nice. I look at all your photos and say, yeah, this guy uh, knows what he's doing. So. I can't say that about all of our customers. So I, I don't, it's not that I know. It's not that I know what I'm doing. It's just that I've struggled so much. <laughs> well, in the end, struggle. Uh, yep, you learn. You learn by mistakes just as much by as success. So I know, as long as you don't make the same mistake twice. Right. Okay. Thank you, Peter. Thank you again. Uh, I look forward to seeing you up at AirVenture and. Um, if we have a chance to sit around the fire at Wayne Daniels and and uh, share some stories, I think that'll be a really good time. That'd be awesome. I, I look forward to that, and I hope we do. And, Jeff, once again, thanks for all you do for the community, too. Um, I, I'm sure you don't know it, but but you've made a huge impact on a lot of people's lives. Well, good. I'm glad we're helping support people. You know, that's that's something that I feel very strongly about. It's on all of us to to try to give back. We've learned from others and we can pass that along to the next generation that follows us. Yeah, that's yep. great. Thank you. All right. All right. Well, for everybody else, um, thanks for listening on this episode. We have our next episode coming up. It's going to be our pre-air venture episode. We're going to run through travel plans and, and lodging options and just the things that we do to help make the show easier and more enjoyable. So that'll be our next episode. Look for that here in the next week or two. This episode, you can find the show notes online at sonicsflight.com slash five eight. We'll have links to SDS and Peter's presentation and, and pictures of his airplane so you can see his system. And uh, if you need additional information, I encourage you to reach out directly to, to SDS through Ross's contact info and uh, send Peter an email, and I'm sure he would love to correspond with builders as well. You can subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast app. You can use Apple iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, any of those types of things. Or you can go directly to our website at sonicsflight.com and listen to it from the webpage. If you have feedback, we'd love to hear it. You can find our email on the webpage, and it's feedback at sonicsflight.com. Let us know if you think um, you have a great topic or you'd like to uh, learn a little bit more about something that we covered in a previous topic. And with that, I'll just uh, thank you guys again. Look forward to running into you down the road. And for everybody, have a great upcoming flying month. I guess we're really kind of getting into the good flying weather. And uh, and everybody fly safely. Yeah, great talking to you guys. And uh, thank you very much for having me on here. Really appreciate it. Everyone take care. The views and opinions expressed on the Sonic Flight podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program. Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonic's Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember, you are the pilot in command.